Well, before we begin our time in God's Word, several of you have asked me why am I wearing this shirt this morning. Uh, If you don't know, I'm a chaplain for the Bear County Sheriff's Department. I also help with San Antonio Police and Castle Hills. You may have noticed all of the flares that are out all along the highway and the service road. Last night we had a tragic incident out here right in front of our church. Uh, Last night there was a rollover accident, and when the police were out there trying to deal with the accident, a drunk driver came through the line and uh, struck a number of the officers, uh, actually knocked uh, two of the police off the overpass to the road below. And uh, the officers are recovering. One has been released from the hospital. Uh, Another one went through surgery and is recovering at the hospital. So I was there this morning uh, with them before church. Uh, There was also a lady who was killed in the accident, a good Samaritan who had stopped and was killed by the drunk driver. So let's just uh, go to the Lord in prayer uh, before we begin our time. Lord, we are always talking about the brevity of life here in church and how none of us are promised the next breath in our body. And just again last night, there was a tragic reminder literally outside of the doors of our church of that. Uh, Father, there is a world around us that is broken by sin and bad choices, and uh, there are people that are affected by those. So we pray for those, Lord, who were affected last night by choices of driving drunk and uh, the things that happened. We ask for healing for the police. We thank you, Father, for protecting them uh, where it could have been so much worse. Uh, We ask for healing, Lord, for the broken bodies. Uh, We thank you for the surgery that's been done, the recovery that's underway. Father, there is not just a physical healing that is needed, but also of mind and spirit, as our first responders are so often faced with seeing uh, the terrible carnage of the world around us. And as these officers are dealing with watching life lost before their very eyes, uh, we ask that you would bring healing to them. We pray as well, Father, for the family of this woman who was killed. We ask for your peace that passes all understanding to surround uh, the loved ones of this lady whose life was lost. And we pray as well, Father, for the drunk driver who will now be dealing with the consequences of choices. We pray, Lord, that your redemptive work might be at work in this young man's life. We pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. I want to begin by reading a list of names this morning, and uh, you tell me if you know who these folks are. Shemua, Shaphat, Egal, Palti, Gadiel, Gedi, Emiel, Sether, Nabi, and Geuel. Now, if I were to ask you to write an essay on them, if this were test time, what would you write? And some of you are saying, Roger, I have no idea who these guys are. And the reason that many of us don't know who these men are, the reason they're forgotten to us, is because they forgot about God. Now, there are two other names that go with the list, names that are probably more familiar to you, and that is Joshua and Caleb. This is a list of the 12 spies who went into the land that would be given to Israel. And uh, these are the names of these spies. The first ten few know, but the other two are known by many. Joshua became the commander of the army of Israel. There's even a book in the Old Testament named after him. Caleb is another one who's known to many of us, but maybe not as well. And so this morning, I want us to 
talk about Caleb. I want to remind you of who he is and the courage that he had, courage that you and I would do well to have in our own lives. So I invite you to turn with me in your Bible to Numbers chapter 13. If you go to the very beginning of the Bible, you'll find Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and then Numbers, Numbers chapter 13. And as we look at Numbers 13, I want to begin by reading verses 1 through 3. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send out for yourself men that they may go and spy out the land of Canaan, which I am going to give to the sons of Israel. You shall send a man uh, from each of his father's tribes, every one a leader among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran at the command of the Lord, all of them men who were heads of the sons of Israel. Now, verses 14 through 16 go on to list the names we just read and the father's households and a number of other names. So it would be kind of like reading through a phone book this morning. Uh, So I want to drop down and pick up in verses 17 through 27. Because here we see the command that these spies are given. When Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan, he said to them, Go up there into the Negev, then go into the hill country, and see what the land is like and whether the people who live in it are strong or weak whether they are few or many. And how is the land in which they live? Is it good or bad? And how are the cities in which they live? Are they open camps or with fortifications? And how is the land? Is it fat or lean? Are there trees in it or not? Make an effort then to get some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the time of the first ripe grapes. So they went up and they spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin as far as Rahab at Labo Hamath. And when they had gone up into the Negev, they came to Hebron, where Ahimon, Shishai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, were there. And then they came into the valley of Eshkol, and from there they cut down a branch with a single cluster of grapes. And they carried it on a pole between two men with some of the pomegranates and the figs. And when they returned from spying out the land at the end of 40 days... They proceeded to come to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation, and they showed them the fruit of the land. And then they told them and said, We went up into the land where you sent us, and it certainly does flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Now there's a focus on the fruit of the land here, because if you look back at Numbers 11 and verses 4 through 6, There it says, And the rabble who were among them had a greedy desire, and the sons of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we used to eat it free in Egypt. (laughs) I love that. Yeah, it was free, if you forget the slave labor that they had to endure. And it says, and then they they said, we remember the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our appetite is gone. There is nothing at all to look at except this manna. Manna. Do you know what that means? What is it? it? That is the literal meaning of manna. And so what happened is this was the miraculous bread that came down from heaven. And it was there in the morning. They would pick up this flaky, sweet, melt-in-your-mouth bread. And as they tasted it, it was so good, they said, manna. Wow, what is it? And so they had this, and it says the people eating this manna day after day after day suddenly said, oh, we could have onions and garlic, and oh, your appetite is just wet right now, right? 
And, and they were saying, we want to go back to the land of Egypt. They're grumbling and complaining about this sweet, melt-in-your-mouth stuff that God was providing for them. I wonder how many times that describes us. Or we've been blessed by God with something. And it just becomes so commonplace to us that we just forget. Look at how good God is to us. And these people had this, this blessing from God. And, and, and they were complaining. It says the rabble among the people. As, as they're wandering around in the wilderness, as they're moving through, coming to the promised land, they're complaining about all they left behind in Egypt. And so to silence their complaining and to help them to be encouraged to go into the land, God says, let me tell you what's coming. Let me let you get a preview of, of the land I'm giving you, the good stuff. And there, there are figs and pomegranates and grapes that are so large, it takes two men on a pole to carry it between them. And, and rather than the people responding with thankfulness or an eagerness to go into the land, uh, what we find instead is there's a sudden paralysis because of the rest of the report that we see here in Numbers 13, 28. It goes on to tell us, nevertheless... The people who live in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Amalek is living in the land of the Negev, and the Hittites, and the Jebusites, and the Amorites are living in the hill country. And the Canaanites are living by the sea and by the side of the Jordan. And as this report is being given, there's fear growing. There's murmuring that begins. Verse 30 says, Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses. And he said, We should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we shall surely overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are too strong for us. I want you to remember what the mission is that we just read. Do you remember all those instructions that we just read that Moses gave, they, they were told to go into the land, see what it's like. Describe what's there. If you're able, bring back some of the fruit. But were they ever asked to decide if they could go take the land? No. That wasn't part of their mission. There was no reason to decide if they could take the land because in verse 2, God said, I am giving you the land. This is a promise. You could take it to the bank. You don't have to decide if you could do this or not. God said, I'm giving it to you. It was a promise that goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. If you look at Genesis 15, 18 through 21, there God promised to Abram that he would give them the land. He said, you will become Abraham, the father of nations. I'm bringing you into a land and I'm going to give it as an inheritance to you. And Abram believed what God said. So much so that he went and bought a field in the future land because when his wife Sarah died, he said, I want her buried where we are going to be. I want to start the family cemetery right here in the land where all of the descendants are going to be around. And it became the family cemetery because later Abraham was buried there and Isaac and Jacob and, and Rebekah and Leah. And so you had this, this promise that the land was theirs. The forefathers and mothers of the nation were buried there. They believed that God would do what he said. But here, instead of looking at the faith of their fathers or looking at the promises of God, they, they look at the people in that place. And they say, there's giants in the land. And at that point, the question shouldn't have been, well, how big are the people who are there? Rather, it should have been, how big is our God? I mean, remember who the nation of Israel is at this point. They'd been in slavery in the land of Egypt. They'd seen the mighty hand of God 
up close and personally. They had been eyewitnesses to the plagues. They saw how God had released them from slavery in Egypt. Then God was with them as they were leaving the land and as their backs were against the the Red Sea and Pharaoh and his army were coming down and were about to wipe them out. They again saw the hand of God as he blocked Pharaoh and then parted the waters and they went through on dry land and they watched the army of Egypt get wiped out. Every morning when they woke up, they said, "There's, there's bread, manna, that feeds millions of people. These are people who saw God. These were people who, who knew who God was and what he could do. And, and, and as we're reading this, it's not that the ten spies were wrong. Everything they said was factual. There were giants in the land. It was going to be a tough battle. But what they forgot was their faith. They had their facts right, but they left out their faith. Joshua and Caleb had the same facts, but notice they also had faith. You see, what happens is they didn't minimize the problems, but they did magnify God. They said there are giants in the land, but there is a God-sized solution for the giants. And as you think about your life this morning, I know some of you are facing giants. As you think about school and the struggles you've had maybe in the semester that's just ended or summer that you're in or what's to come, And you're wondering, am I going to be able to do this? When someone is sick, when there's problems in your family or your finances, when things at work or in some other area of your life is going off the rails, do you minimize God and allow your problems to be magnified? Or do you look at those giant-sized problems and say, there's a God-sized solution for what I'm facing? You know, when storms hit, it's easy to lose sight of God, isn't it? If you've never read Matthew chapter 14, I encourage you to do that. There you'll find the the passage that talks about Peter. And he's in a boat with the other disciples, and they're being storm-tossed, and they're out there on the Sea of Galilee. and, And Jesus is not in the boat with them, but the passage tells us he came walking on water, and they see him, and they're afraid. They think it's a ghost. And they're crying out in fear, and Jesus is like, it's fine, you're all right. And Peter says, Jesus, if it's really you, tell me to get out of the boat and walk on water. He says, come on, Peter. And what does Peter do? He gets out. He steps onto the water. He's walking on water. And everything is great until he takes his eyes off of God's son and he looks at the wind and the waves around him and suddenly he starts to sink. And some of you this morning are facing storms in your life. And you've taken your eyes off of God and you're looking at the wind and the waves around you and you're sinking. And what Peter did at that moment is he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus did. And God wants us to get our eyes off of the storm around and instead focus on him. You know, when I was a policeman in Dallas, I had a lot of times where I would deal with people who were in in desperate situations. Things like I mentioned this morning that happened right out here on the highway in front of our church. There were other times I I dealt with things where people had been robbed. And as I was taking the report and I was saying, tell me everything you can about the person and the weapon, and on and on, they would usually begin with, well, he had a gun. And I'd say, okay, tell me about the gun. Was it a revolver, a semi-automatic? Was it this or that? Well, it was big. Okay, it was a big gun. Uh, What did it look like? Uh, That big. You know, like a M1 Abrams turret staring right, right in their face, right? And, and as I said, well, can you tell me anything more about it? Well, it was a big gun. 
okay, did, what was the person wearing? What did they, did, well, they had a gun. I mean, about all they could tell me was there was a gun. And, and, and the barrel looked like it was that big as they looked down it. I know that this morning some of you are staring down the, the barrel of a tank. And it's easy to focus and be fearful of what you're facing. But what God says is, take your eyes off of the wind and the waves and look at me. I'm here, I'm with you. As we look at what's happening here this morning in verses 32 through 33, uh, it it says that they, they took their eyes off God because it says, so they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land. In which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone in spying it is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. There we also saw the Nephilim. The sons of Anak are a part of the Nephilim. And, and we became like grasshoppers in our own sight. So we were in their sight. The Nephilim, as you read the Old Testament, were the, the race the super race of giants that were created when some of the fallen angels cohabitated with earthly women. And in the flood, they were all wiped out in judgment. But the people knew who the Nephilim were, and as they see these big Shaquille O'Neal-sized guys, they're saying, well, they must be descendants of the Nephilim because that was the biggest, baddest people that had ever lived. And as as you're thinking in terms of what we're reading here this morning... Again, I think back to something that happened when I was a policeman in Dallas. It was 1990. And uh, many of you have heard of the Texas OU football game, the Red River Shootout. And as you know, it takes place at the State Fair of Texas every year. Well, I'm a Texas Longhorn. This is where the Aggies usually hiss. Uh, There we go. I thought they were here this morning. So as, as a Longhorn, my lieutenant thought it would be great fun to have me guard the, Texas, uh, the uh, Oklahoma Sooners. So I got to spend the day with the OU football team. I heard Boomer Sooner so many times that, uh, well, I'll keep moving. <laughs> and so I'm standing there on the sidelines with the OU football team watching this game. And it was one of the good games, you know, that come literally down to the last play of the game to decide who's going to win. UT is up 14 to 13. It's been a great football game, and it comes all the way down to kicking the last field goal. OU had the ball. They had marched down to about the 30. Uh, It should have been a a chip shot for a, a good kicker, and this guy had already kicked two field goals in the game, so he was feeling pretty confident. And as I'm there on the sidelines, you know, normally you watch and these kickers are kind of warming up and, you know, they're sweating bullets and everybody leaves them alone. Well, this guy was just kind of lounging around. He wasn't really worried. And I'm watching this guy. He's kind of cocky and uh, he's sitting there and finally the time comes. And as I was sitting there, I have to tell you, a thought ran through my mind about, you know, maybe his, his knee. No, I didn't do that. I was a professional. <laughs> But he gets his helmet, he goes trotting out onto the field, he's given the number one, it's in the bag is what he's kind of saying. He lines up, he kicks the field goal, and he shanks it. He shanks it, and he misses. And UT literally wins with seconds rolling off the clock. So we go to the locker room, and again, being a professional policeman, I wasn't expressing my glee as I was among all these OU Sooners. But I'm standing there posted at the door outside in the locker room with my partner, and we hear all this yelling going on inside the locker room. And suddenly one of the trainers comes running out, and he says, you got to come and help them. They're killing them. 
And we're like, what's going on? And we go in there, and we see these six, five, 300-plus linemen in full pads playing ping-pong with the kicker, right? They're kind of <laughs> pushing them around about having just lost the game. And as I'm looking at this, and the guy's going to help him, um, I said, I think he's doing pretty good, you know? <laughs> now, I'm 6'4", and at the time, I had a lot more muscles than I do now. But I can tell you at that moment, as I'm looking at these giants... I felt a little bit like a grasshopper, and I was happy to just kind of step back so it was nice when the coaches got in and rescued this kicker. And that's what we're reading here. These guys come in, and, and as they're facing this situation, I want to remind you that these guys are not wimps. Do you remember how we read that each one was chosen because he was a leader? There are 12 spies because there are 12 tribes. And when you talk about the men who were handpicked to be the spies, if you look at Numbers chapter 1, verses 45 through 46, you see just how elite these guys were because there it says the census of the soldiers was there was 603,550 men of war who were age 20 or older. Over 603,000 soldiers, these 12 were chosen. These are the recon marines. These are the Navy SEALs. These are the Green Berets, the Army Rangers. These were the top of the top warriors. And when they are chosen and they are sent in, to even accept this mission proves their courage. As you look at verse 20, Moses said, Make an effort then to get some of the fruit of the land. When he says make an effort, he uses the Hebrew word hazak. Hazak literally means show yourself courageous. Moses says, I know this is dangerous. You're going in behind enemy lines. You're going deep into enemy territory. And we saw in verse 20, it's the beginning of the harvest season. And what you know of the harvest season is that means the fields are full of workers by day. And at night, the watchmen are out guarding the crops and and the fruit that's already been harvested. It it tells you that as these guys went in, as they collected the the fruit, the grapes were so big they had to put it on a pole between them, which means they couldn't crawl through the underbrush. They were walking upright down the roads carrying this stick with the, the figs and pomegranate and the grapes on it. So they were easy to see. The the people in the land knew that Israel had been conquering and was coming that way, so they were on high alert. They were waiting for spies or an army to come in, so everybody was looking. These guys were exposed. They were out there. They were men of great courage just to be in that place. I say all that to remind us that these men were courageous, mighty men, but they failed because they forgot God. Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever forgotten God? Have you ever been facing a giant-sized problem and you forget that God is in it with you? Where Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Where 1 John 4, 4 says, Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The Holy Spirit is resident within us to fight our enemy, Satan, that's in the world. You may think, I'm not really that courageous of a person, but you're all going to face some situation. And if you forget God... If you forget your faith, then failure may come. And when the people forget about God and they only looked at the giants, look at what Numbers chapter 14 verse 1 tells us. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept 
that night. If you think that a negative spirit isn't catching, just look at how quickly this spreads throughout the assembly. Again, I want to remind you who these people were. They had been delivered from Egypt. They had seen God defeat Pharaoh's army at the Red Sea. They had been fed by God. They followed the pillar of fire at night in the cloud during the day. There was a physical presence of God. All you had to do was look up and see him. And yet they forgot God. And as they become afraid... They turn on the leaders God has appointed to them because Numbers 14, 2 through 4 says, And all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. And why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, Let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. How quickly they had forgotten the sufferings of Egypt and the blessings of God. Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever been facing a situation where you just say, you know, I'm tired of fighting. It'd just be so much easier to give in, do it the world's way, to go back to what the world offers instead of trying to follow God, trying to move forward in my walk with him. Have you forgotten what God has offered to you? Have you forgotten what God has given to us? A great place to start is in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, because in Ephesians 2, 12, we're told, Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. It says we were lost. We were hopeless. Without Jesus Christ coming to die to pay the penalty of death on the cross for us, it says that we would have been lost for all eternity. We were headed for hell. And he says, for most of us who are here as Gentiles, you were outside of the covenant of Israel. You didn't even have the promise of being my chosen people. You were hopeless and lost. But then he says, you were grafted in as Gentiles and as Jews who became believers in the true Messiah, Jesus. You became a part of God's family. You were adopted as sons and daughters. And for all of us who are here today who have become believers in Jesus, I want you to think about what you're trusting him for. We look ahead to eternity. We talk about our faith in Christ. And we say, I I, I know where I'm going when my life is over. I know I get to go home to heaven. I'm trusting in Jesus. And so, brothers and sisters, if we can trust in God for all eternity, why do we doubt he can handle today or tomorrow and the problems we face? As you read through the Bible, it tells us, look at the grass of the field. It says God clothes it in its splendor, and it's going to be thrown into a furnace. He says, look at the birds of the air. God feeds them. And he says, are you not more precious than the stuff of the world? And so we trust God for eternity, but we struggle with trusting him for today and tomorrow. If you look at the first part of the book of Numbers, you'll see that this grumbling that's been going on is a constant problem. It's something that people have been doing all through the wilderness. And God at this point just says, you know, enough. You guys have been complaining and and grumbling and whining about all that's happening. So he says, uh, you get to have your self your prophecy fulfilled. You, you said that we're gonna, we wish we would have died here in the wilderness. God says, great, you will. And your children, 
that you said will become plunder to the enemy, they are the ones who get to go in and take possession of the land. Look at Numbers 14.2. There they grumbled and he said, you wanted to die in the wilderness? Great. The only two people out of that generation who were of fighting age who would be allowed to enter into the promised land were Joshua and Caleb because they were the two who did not forget God. God said, each day that you were in the land, 40 days, you will spend one year in the wilderness. So for 40 years, you get to wonder. Do you remember how many people there were? There were over 603,550 men of war. Add in the women, add in the children. But he says those who were 20 and older would be the ones who die. And so what that means is divided by 40, you would roughly have 100 people every single day who would be dying in the wilderness. Every single day, you got to watch about 100 people die as they wandered in the wilderness. It was a reminder to them of their lack of faith and of the faithfulness of God to say, I will fulfill what I promised. I mean, as you think about over a million people dying over 40 years, how would you like to be in that last group of 100 or 200 people where everybody's sitting around going, hate to sound cold and callous, but could you just die because when you guys are gone, we get to go into the land, right? And so the last one of them dies. The 40 years are up, and they come back to enter the promised land. I want you to turn over two books in your Bible to the book of Joshua. Joshua is two more books to the right in the Old Testament. Because here in Joshua chapter 14, we pick up the story of them coming to the land. And so in Joshua 14, 6 and following, this is what it tells us. Then the sons of Judah drew near to Joshua and Gilgal. And Caleb, the son of Jephthah, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know the word which the Lord spoke to Moses, the man of God, concerning you and me in Kadesh Barnea. Remember, these are the two guys that are left. Joshua is now the general. Moses has died. Joshua is now the leader of the nation. And Caleb comes to him and he says, I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I brought word back to him as was in my heart. Nevertheless, my brethren who went up with me made the heart of the people melt with fear. But I followed the Lord my God fully. Isn't that beautiful? Don't you want that to be true of your life? But I followed the Lord my God fully. Joshua 14, 9 through 10 goes on to say, So Moses swore to me on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance to you and your children forever, because you have followed the Lord my God fully. And now behold, the Lord has let me live just as he spoke these 45 years from the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses, when Israel walked in the wilderness. And now behold, I am 85 years old today. Caleb says, Joshua, you remember when we went into the land with the other 10 guys. I was 40. He says he's 85 now. They've had the 40 years wandering in the wilderness. There's been some initial conquests of the land, so there's a few more years added as they come to the place, the place that had turned the people away in fear. And he says, I want to remind you of the promise that Moses made. He said, I get to choose any place in the entire land that I want Imagine somebody were to come to you and say, you get to choose anywhere in the entire United States where your piece of retirement property is. You can have a ranch in the hill country if you like to hunt. 
You can have a, a lake house with a boat if you want to fish. You can have a, a, a cabin up in the mountains if you like to ski or just enjoy the beauty of it. Maybe you want just a little garden home in a safe place in the city where you don't have to mess with anything. He says you get to choose anywhere you would want. Where would you choose? If you were Caleb at 85 years old and somebody said, you get to have the first pick, what would you choose? Caleb says, no, Joshua, I've been looking at the land, I've been thinking about it. And he said, the place I want, it's right there. The place I want is the place that caused the heart of the people to melt. I want, I want that stronghold, that fortified city up on the hilltop. I want, I want the place that the people were afraid of. Look at Joshua fourteen eleven through 12. He says, I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. As my strength was then, so my strength is now for war and for going out and coming in. Now then, give me this hill country about which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day that the Anakim were there. With great fortified cities, perhaps the Lord will be with me, and I shall drive them out as the Lord has spoken. Whenever you see that I am ending at the, in a word in our English translations, em, that's the English letter S. It's a plural. The sons of Anak, remember, they were the, the biggest, baddest giants. So what he's saying is, we, we saw in Numbers 13.22 that the three sons of Anak were living there. There's been 40 plus years that have passed. These guys have had some kids who maybe have had some kids. So the giants have actually multiplied. And if you look at Numbers 13.22, there we saw a little side note that said, Now Hebron was built seven years before Zone in Egypt. Now, what that's telling you, if you look at, back at history and what archaeologists have found, Zone is a city that was built in Egypt, and at the time, it had existed for more than 400 years. So all this is telling us is you have this mountaintop fortress that they've had 400 years to build the fortifications and the walls. Think about how massively fortified that city has been over 400 years, and in it, you have the giants living there among all the other people. This is no walk in the park to take this place. It, it is the biggest and baddest warriors, the most fortified mountain complex you could ever come against. It's why 40 years earlier the people saw it and said, we can't take this place. And their hearts melted. But rather than running from it, the 85-year-old Caleb says, give it to me. And perhaps, you see, he doesn't say God will do what I want, the way I want. He says, perhaps God will be with me. You know, Caleb wasn't content to sit back and talk about all his old war stories. You know anybody like that? You see, Caleb said, I still want to create some new memories. There are still some battles to fight. You know, when you get older in life, it doesn't mean your life is over. If you're somebody who has a little snow on the roof like I'm starting to get, you know, where your hair's turning a little white or gray, it doesn't mean the fire in your heart goes out, friends. If you still have breath in your body, it means God's not done with you. It means that he still has work for us to do. One of my prayers in life is, Lord, give me life until my work is done and give me work until my life is done. Is that something that you think? Does it give me life until my work is done? 
Or are you saying, I just want to get to a point where I can sit back and do nothing? God says, as long as you have breath in your body, I have work for you to do. Now, as I'm talking about this, it's not just the senior saints sometimes who try to coast. I see it happen with those who are a lot younger. Friends, don't let your epitaph on your tombstone read, died at age 30, buried at 80. Died at 30, buried at 80. Some who are younger have just given up and are just trying to coast through life. If you're still breathing, God has more for you to do. So if you've been sitting on the sidelines, God wants you to get back in the game no matter what your age is. Look at Joshua 14, 13. So Joshua blessed him, and he gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephthah, for an inheritance. Don't you love the way that reads? (laughs) Caleb says, I want that hilltop fortress. And Joshua says, it's yours, Caleb. Uh, Just remember to evict the current inhabitants before you move in, right? He gave it to him. And Caleb goes up there and he takes it with God's help. Look at Joshua 14, 14. Therefore Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephthah, the Kenizzite, until this day, because he followed the Lord God of Israel fully. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba, for Arba was the greatest among the Anakim. And then the land had rest from war. So the word Kiriath means city of, city of Arba. And if you were Caleb, you see when he took the city, he doesn't rename it Kiriath Caleb. He doesn't say every time somebody hears the name Kiriath Caleb, they'll remember, oh yeah, Caleb was that dude who took out the bigger guy. And now he's remembered. You know what Hebron means? Hebron means communion. He says, whenever people hear the name of that city, I want them to remember that God met me there, that I had communion with God. And with his help, we took this city. He calls it Hebron, not Kiriath, Caleb. As we come to a close today, I want you to go on a reconnaissance mission. I'm giving you a, a mission as you leave today. And this reconnaissance mission is to spy out the land of your own life. I want you to go home and I want you to think about your life. And I want you to think about a couple of things. First, where have you had communion? Where has God met you, so to speak? Where did he show up in a situation that without his help you would have failed? Where has God proved himself faithful to you? The needs that he's met for you physically the obstacles he's helped you to overcome, the ways that he's walked with you, even in those times where you maybe didn't know he was with you. And then second, I want you to think about the obstacles that you're facing today, the giants in your land, the things that you're facing where maybe you're saying, this is impossible, and without God's help, I will fail. What are those things? Martin Luther once said that one with God is a majority. One with God is a majority. And so no matter what it is that you're facing, whatever the giant-sized problem is you're facing in your life this morning, there is a God-sized solution. If you will turn to God, if you will receive Jesus as your Savior, and if you will ask for his help in your life this morning, I want you to remind yourself that God is big enough to handle any battle you're facing and then turn to him and ask for help. And as you remember that, remember as well, you have a part in the fight. Caleb went 
And he took the city. He fought the battle with God's help. God doesn't say, just sit back and watch me. He says, I will work in and through you and others. So as you think about these things in your life this morning, I want you to, to go home this, this afternoon and just write these things down if you need to. And ask, where has God met you and where are the obstacles that you need his help with today? Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we close. Lord God, we thank you for your word that reminds us of who you are. It reminds us of who you are, Jesus. You're called the word in John 1, 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And Father, as we're talking about giants in the land, needs in our life, there is no greater need that any of us would ever face than that for a Savior. We were lost, hopeless, without God and without hope in the world. And then you, Jesus, came. You took on flesh and blood. You, the word who were God, became flesh and blood so that you could go to the cross and take my place and the place of everyone else who owed that penalty of sin, every man, woman, boy, and girl who's ever lived. And we thank you, God, that you took on the biggest giant that could ever be faced, that of death, and you conquered it. You conquered sin, death, and Satan. You overcame the grave. And we thank you, God, that you offered that gift of new and eternal life to us if we will come to your Son. And we thank you, God, for your word that reminds us, your written word that tells us stories of faith like that of Caleb to remind us of men who trusted in you, men who remembered you in the midst of storms and how you took them through it. Father, would we be those who turn to you in these times of struggle and storms that we face? Would we know that you were faithful? You told us, Jesus, I will never leave you or forsake you. And you, Holy Spirit, promised that you are with us. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So, Father, as believers in Jesus who are empowered and indwelt and sealed by you, would we go into the world and face the giants in the land knowing there is a God-sized solution for them? We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.